our conversation to a close. And then coming back to face the front. So, can we get the mic? Um, just make sure we have to make sure the volume is right. So, I'm curious to hear comments, observations. What was how is that to talk about your judgments with somebody? How is it to use kind of reflective questioning, discernment about them? Yes, over here in the. So the second question, how can you know that's true? I'm engaged in some philosophical dialogue about this in my head, and I feel like the answer is I can't to all of them, and so I don't really know what to do with that question. So you, you, don't, you don't know what to do with it in the sense that you can't... I can't know. Right, exactly. <laughs> that's the point. <laughs> so everyone's answer is I can't know? Not always, but often we can't know. Huh. No. Am I going to get my life together? Can I really know that that's true? No. If, if, if it has any anything any future orientation, the answer is always I can't know. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Even something as simple as could I have d- I I should have done better. I could have made a better choice. Well, if I could have, I would have. You know, I didn't. So we found, or it became clear that we shared almost all the same mm-hmm. issues. You mm-hmm. know, we, oh yeah, that sounds very familiar. Yep, me too. There's a lot mm-hmm. of me too there. Um, so, and how was it just to, to get that? That uh, oh, this person. It's very reassuring. Uh huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe there's just one critic who just has <laughs> a lot of. There's just one. Yeah. It's so this um, meme goes around. Uh, and uh, another common thing was there, there uh, in many cases, there isn't a payoff. Mm-hmm. Or the payoff is that you, uh, safety, mm-hmm. which kind of comes back to something that came to my mind very early in this, which is that the critic is really the voice of your fear. Mm-hmm. And it's just easy to, easier to stop than to go. Mm-hmm. And that's what the critic lets you do. Yeah. Keeps you safe, keeps you small. Yeah. Keeps you theoretically out of trouble but not. So, um, I found the exercise very useful um, for a number of reasons, but um, something I I wanted to address that came up for me is the question about um, how do you know it's true, so picking up on the other comment, is like what if people in the environment are constantly saying it to you? Mm -hmm. Then you start to feel like it must be the truth, mm-hmm. right? 
and mm -hmm. also the if the belief that you hold was first instilled in you by someone else very long ago and then throughout your life because you you took it on at some point maybe it came in your you know really formative years when you were just you know figuring it out figuring out who you are and then you believe it so it shows up in the environment everywhere mm -hmm. so i'm just trying you know just mm -hmm. trying to figure that part out like what yeah almost like um what comes first the chicken or the egg mm -hmm. you know <laughs> mm -hmm. so. yeah well I mean, it's true that some of these views are really old, right? And and we, you know, the mind is a powerful thing, and we create our own reality. As the Buddha said, with our with our <laughs> thoughts, we create the world, right? So we often attract confirmation of those inner views, right? And we repeat that throughout our lives with a lot of pain, usually. Um, <clears throat> and um, the, I'm just I'm, I'm reflecting sort of going power meta process to this process. So I'm, I'm bringing together two different modalities here. I'm bringing together this work on the critic and I'm bringing together Byron Katie's work. And they sort of mesh mostly and sometimes there's not complete meshing. So one of the places I'm feeling into that they're not meshing is that um, for me, it doesn't matter whether it's true. Sometimes it's true. You know, some of these views are true, you know. Um, but that's, but in the context of the work with the critic, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether it's true or not true, right? What matters is how you relate to that thought, how you relate to that mechanism that berates you and tyrannizes you for something that may or may not be true, right? So, um, uh, so for example, you know, um, you know, like we forget someone's, we forget a loved one's birthday, right? It's true. It was a fact. It happened. Okay, so I forgot their birthday. So what? Okay, I forgot. Thank you for telling me. That's really helpful. Right, there are many different ways we can work with the critic. And I'm mean, going to talk about this in a minute. The reason that we get so pummeled and, and beleaguered by our critic is because we believe the critic to be true and therefore we let it do what it does. Right? So this idea of whether it's true or not is an interesting... Um, place to look at. Sometimes it is true. Sometimes it isn't true. Mostly it's, I would say it's not true. The views and perspectives of our critic come from a very negative, distorted place about us usually. So they're inaccurate at best. Um, and um, But again, we can come back to your question later, but as we talk about the material about working with whether something's true or not. Let's see if that helps with your with your reflection. Yeah. So, okay. Yes. One of the things that came up in our conversation was uh, why do we want to make ourselves feel crummy? If that's the payoff, what kind of payoff is that? Why do we do that? It's <laughs> a very good question. So, why do we why if the payoff is that we feel crummy, why do we do that? It's a really good question. Why do we believe a voice that makes us feel crummy? You know? So this is why we're here, you know, to look at that. You know? Why do I, you know, out of all the, you know, we think somewhere between 15 and 60,000 thoughts a day, why out of all those thoughts do I believe those ones or take those to be the voice of absolute truth and authority and not the other ones? 
Why do I listen to those more than others? Why do I give them more preference and priority? Um, so, you know, I, I don't have the answers for you. You, you have to look for yourself. What, why is it that I believe that voice? What's the payoff for believing that voice? What's the payoff for feeling crummy? Well, there's probably other payoffs too psychologically. And again, I'll talk about this in a minute, why, we, why this mechanism is here in the first place and, and why it's so entrenched. But it's a good reflection. You know, even just to even just to recognize that, huh? If I keep li- listening to this voice, I feel crummy. That's worth looking at, right? The Buddha talked about looking at suffering, the source of suffering, and what frees us from suffering, right? So this is one thing. It's clear. This makes me feel crummy. I need to look at this. I need to pay attention. How can I work with this more skillfully? How can I not buy into its premise that makes me feel like crap? Right? <clears throat> yes. Um, I think something we uh, both discovered is um, the big payoff is that you actually don't have to do anything about it. Mm. You get to stay in that place. Mm. Yeah, that's a good insight. And and one other thing that, that came to me as, as people were talking is um, it reminds me of a, a friend of mine um, was in Scotland and had a guide who would talk about, you know, uh, you know, sort of bad things about people. And he would always end it up by saying, but it does not make him a bad person. <laughs> <laughs> so it could be true, but it does not make you a bad person. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a, that's a really good point you make, that it um, that one of the payoffs is we don't do anything. It, leads, it actually leads to a certain kind of paralysis and inaction and a sort of safety in the, in the squalor. And we wallow, we, with the safety in the wallowing. Because it's familiar, right? Because it's, it's a familiar identity, and the thing that we most preserve is our identity. Right? Whatever feels comfortable, whatever feels familiar, even if it's crappy, we'll preserve it, because that's what we know. And the ego, the thing that ego fears most, aside from death, is the unknown. Right? Death is the unknown. Right? So we stay in our comfortable, small place, because that's what's familiar. If we, if we start to, you know, like so... In England, you know, children are to be seen and not heard. And if you, you know, you know, too expressive, too loud, too flamboyant, too happy, too something or other, you're too big for your breeches, as somebody said over there, um, right? So you stay small, right? And because it's because it's you stay small because you preserve the the goodwill of those around you. Right? That's a very smart thing to do as a child, to, to keep on the good side of your caregivers. Right? That's why we do this. I'll say more about that in a minute. Yes. For, for me, <clears throat> for me, I learned at a very young age, uh, shame is how you get yourself to be better. Mm-hmm. That it actually, that that's what you deserve to do because mm-hmm. you haven't been doing it right. Mm-hmm. And if you shame yourself, right. then you will. It's not true. Right. But uh, that's what I Right, that is the construct of the critic, and that's how, you know, I, I'll start talking about what I was going to talk about a little later, but, um, you know, as, as children, you know, as very young infants, you know, we have these very powerful forces, you know, children are by nature powerful and energetic and, and have a lot of life force, right, energy, enthusiasm, rage, joy, terror, fear, I mean, they go through, they're beautifully expressive, until they learn that that's not okay. 
that no, we don't do rage in this family. No, we don't do anger in this family. No, we don't do sadness in this family. No, we don't do tantrums in this family. No, we, you know, we fill in the blanks of all the things that are not okay at home, at school, at church, wherever your, you know, those views come in, right? So children have to find a way, this is my interpretation of Freud's work, um, we have to find a way to deal with those very powerful libidinal impulses. And the, f- the mechanism that shuts those down is shame, shame and guilt, which is a very powerful, paralyzing force in the psyche. Right? It works. Right? It works with children, it works with adults. Um, and, and so we've developed that sort of intrapsychic process where we've learned to shame ourselves, so we shut down that life force. So we can live in the confines of whatever family unit we're in, to receive love, right? To maintain that bond of attachment. It's a very smart thing children do. We all have did it. We all did it to survive. The problem is that shaming mechanism, once we're adults and we don't no longer need to be confined and bound and no longer need to know that sadness or anger or whatever is bad, but that mechanism stays stuck in our, in our psyche, right? And it's an old mechanism. It's not sophisticated. Very, it's very right, wrong, good, bad, right? So it's primitive. It's, that's why, that's why the, the critic is very, that's bad, you're bad, you're wrong, good, like, bad, you know. It, there's not a lot of nuance in there. It's not a lot of, oh, well, that, maybe that was a painful behavior, but maybe not, that's not a bad person. It's just a painful action, right? Process versus person-centered criticism, right? We learn that in some schools. So, um, so yes, so to your point about shame, that, that's how this, the, the, the critic works. And, and it, the, with the premise that it will shame us into action, like shame us into cleaning our car. Right? But mostly what it does is it, it shames us into inaction, into paralysis, into passivity, into hopelessness, into depression, small or large. Um, doesn't you know there, there are places where that does get us to do things um, where it kind of dovetails with conscience but um, as an adult as a healthy conscious adult we have much more sophisticated things to draw on to help us make decisions to make actions to figure out ethical dilemmas than just what's good bad right wrong right because life isn't so simple it's very nuanced so, um, any other comments before I move on? Yes. Are you saying there's no place for shame? Am I saying there's no place for shame? I mean, shame happens. Um, I don't think it's a healthy thing to use for oneself or others. No. 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 You can you can educate children to understand, you know, what's useful, what's not useful, what's kind, what's unkind, what's harmful, what's unharmful. Um, it's more work. <laughs> Maybe more work. I don't actually know if that's even true. It's more work. Um, it's just it's, it's a different style of educating. I think religion has a huge part of, a huge role. The question was, what, what's the role of religion in shame? Um, it's a huge part. You know, I grew up Catholic, and that had its fair share of shaming. And every tradition that I know has its, Buddhism included, has its has its shaming. It, again, it, it's, it, they become socially conforming 
institutions that you know dovetail with the the societal institutions that want people to fit into a certain social order, and the the easiest way to have people fit into a social order, aside from terrorizing them, aside from bribing them, is shaming them. Um, so, you know, and every religion has its dose of that. You know. So yeah, so the back. I think another way that. Um Another payoff, just to build on what you were saying with attachment, is staying in relationships that may or may not be healthy for you. Because if you are to change the thought or change the way you talk to yourself and then actually change the behavior, you might somehow surpass a partner or go beyond what you know is possible in that relationship. So that's scary. It scares right. people to loss, you know, the fear mm-hmm. of loss, the fear yeah. of the loss of the love, which comes from the old stuff, mm-hmm. but is now continued in adult relationships. Yeah, so we stay safe, we stay small. Yeah. 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 Okay, so um, thank you for doing that exercise. Um, you know, and you may choose to continue reflecting on it. You know, these, these are good things to reflect on as you go home, as the new judgments pop up into your head. Oh, is that true? You know, it's one of the strategies I use to work with the critic. Is that true? Is that really true? Okay. And you bring in a more discerning, reflective quality, rather than a, just a simple agreeing or uh, passive quality. So, a few more things about the critic, and then we'll do some more practice. So, uh, interesting to look at the idea of loyalty to the critic. We're generally quite loyal to it, however painful it is. Um, and the critic will, will likes, to, uh, likes us to have loyalty to it, to believe in it to believe that we need it to function, to believe that we need it to make ethical decisions, to believe we need it to n- know how to navigate in the world. We need it to motivate ourselves. Right? As if we, there's, no, there's no other source of motivation. It needs us to believe it's the voice of moral authority, right? voice of conscience. But through my understanding, my practice, you know, when we cultivate awareness, clarity, mindfulness, discernment, these are much better tools to navigate these more subtle, difficult ethical choices and decisions we have in our lives. So, um, in, interesting to look at the different levels of the critics. So the mental layer, right, the cognitive, the thoughts, the ideas, the views, the judgments, right? But then it, it's, not, it's not just cognitive, it's also, it manifests physically. Usually when we're feeling under the weight of the critic, when we're, when we're buying into some shaming, what happens when we feel shame? We feel collapsed, we feel heavy, we might feel low energy, we suddenly feel depleted. So any of you who are uh, artists or writers or musicians who are trying to create, Right? Suddenly you get your desk all bright and chipper and 
And then suddenly it's like, you just feel like, it's <laughs> dead weight. <laughs> so you look at the blank page like, oh gosh. <laughs> you know, because, because there's, a, there's, there's judgments going on about your capacity, about your ability, about your writing, about whatever it is you're creating, it could be you know, whatever your work is. Right? When you notice that kind of listlessness and heaviness and hopelessness and... It may be that the critic is manifesting, even though it's, you're not telling yourself, oh, I'm, I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not creative enough. So notice how it affects you when, when, you, when, you, when your judge is you know, attacking you, um, how it makes you feel physically, how it makes your energy feel. Do you feel a loss of energy? Um, sometimes I notice I get really foggy-brained and foggy vision. Um, and then how it affects you emotionally. And what emotions come as a result of judging yourself, of believing whatever your judgments are. I'm not good enough, not smart enough, not whatever. Right? Is there a sense of feeling um, hollow or empty or less than deficient, unworthy? And these are very kind of heavy, deficient is a common experience from feeling the critic, a sense of just emptiness. No hollowness, worthlessness, claustrophobia. Boy, this is a fun workshop. Um, <laughs> lethargy, heaviness, dullness. Um, you want to recognize it, because one of the reasons I think it's important to recognize, because sometimes I'll get to my desk and I'm writing and creating and stuff, and I'll feel this kind of, this kind of blah, heavy, hollow, foggy, fuzzy, and I know that my critic is operating in some, in some domain but it, I haven't caught the thought, but it's landed in my body physically. So I'm feeling like, you know, hopeless or stupid or some quality that's making it really hard to get clear. And so I will often uh, try and I'll, I'll articulate what I'm feeling physically, emotionally, energetically. What would this be? In a th- if I had to th- make this a thought, what would it be? Oh, I'm feeling like I'm stupid. I'm feeling like I have nothing to say. I'm feeling like my creativity is worthless. Right? So, and articulating the judgments, like, oh, that's what's going on. Well, that's a load of crap. I don't believe that for a minute. That's not true. Right? So if we get clear about what the judgment, if we can pull it out of our physical, energetic, emotional state, then we go, oh, that's what's going on. You're saying my writing is useless. Oh, that's interesting. Thank you for your opinion. Okay. <laughs> we'll put that aside and we'll carry on with our day. Thank you very much. You know, or whatever the story is that we're making up, right? No one's going to like this, you know. No one liked the last story you wrote. No, 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 no. Yes, yes, yes. Very interesting. Have a nice day. And, you know, so, yes. Do you find that that is uh, common or, na- or a, I call it normal because that sounds judgmental, but that, that the thought, is, when you finally realize it, it's actually been in play for a while? Well, generally things precede thoughts. But the thoughts may be so ingrained that you don't even need to think the thought to wake up with that feeling. Right? If you've believed that thought for years after years after years that you're not really smart enough to write, to create, 
right? That nobody's really going to be interested in what you have to say. If you've believed that for so long, you can wake up in the morning and that thought has not surfaced in the mind, but you just feel it, right? So that's why it's important to like, well, what is this feeling? What would this feeling say? Oh, it's feeling like you're not smart enough. Well, that's interesting, you know? Interesting, because I actually do have a master's degree and I've published many articles and books and, you know, some people say that might be evidence that I have some intelligence. Um, right? So you kind of just, so it's really good to, to pull it out. Yeah, because it's often um, not, uh, yeah, it's often just so in, ingrained in our nervous system at, at this point. Yeah. But often it, it's a thought that went unnoticed, you know or a fear when I noticed. So, what else? So, um, there are different schools of thought. I wonder if I have this quote about that. So, um, there are different schools of thought on the critic. I, I, I come from one particular point of view. Um, there are others, and I'm going to read just a summary of the two points of view. So, one is to treat the critic as an enemy, as a problem to be ignored, dismissed, fought against, or overcome. Actually, this isn't really accurate. I should just ignore what I just said. Um, I don't know who wrote this, but they obviously don't know what they're talking about. (laughs) Who do you think you are to write this? (laughs) Um, So so let me rephrase that, because it's a little um, uh, uh, caricatured. So the, this point of view, one point of view, which I, which I tend to agree with, it treats the critic as a, um, um, uh, basically any judgment is an attack. It's an attack on our well-being, it's an attack on our worth, it's an attack on our value. And because of that, just as you would respond to anybody externally attacking you, you would defend. You would take appropriate action to thwart the impact of that attack. The second approach is to treat the critic as a misguided ally, to be, be befriended and transformed. This is the approach recommended by um, the voice dialogue folks, um, internal family systems to some degree, Solcia Malioni with her work on demons. Um, this sees the critic as attempting to help or protect the person in a distorted, dysfunctional way. So you're kind of trying to tease out what, what's in the critic there that might be useful. So, um, you know, at times I think that can be helpful. For the most part, I don't think that's where most people are at. I think most people need to have, create a lot of space because they're so um, smothered and swamped by the pervasiveness of the critic that they need to actually create some inner space so they can actually feel and see what's actually true. Um, but at times it can be helpful to look into what, what is, you know, what, what, what you know, is there something useful in this? Or where's the pain, where is it, where's the pain that this is arising from, that this judgment's happening like it is? Um, another important point is to pay attention to the impact it has on your body and your heart. So normally when the critic is operating, we are somewhat allied with that mental voice, right? We're sort of, we and the critic are sort of one and the same. You know, whether it's saying, I am a bad person or you're a terrible person, as in you, as in oneself, um, it's as if we're, with the very little space between us and the critic. 
And because of that, we don't actually, we be, so the critic, it's like almost like the critic and, the, and ourselves are over here judging ourselves here, but we're over there doing the judging. Does that make sense? So we're not actually experiencing what we are, but we're not so connected with how it feels. Right? So, and I say this because I had this experience very early on in my practice. When I first started practice 30 years ago, I had a very, very vicious critic. And, um, and I was sitting in meditation one day, and my critic was just going on on about something. I don't even know what it was. I wonder, can't remember what it is now. But, um, and instead of just being the critic, doing the judging, I was the one feeling attacked. I was the one feeling how painful and brutalizing it was to be talked at so harshly and cruelly. Right? Just as if we might feel that if someone else is, is really doing it, you know, ver- verbally abusing us. Right? We feel how painful and diminishing that is. Right? So something happened where I felt like, well, this is really, really painful to listen and let myself talk to myself like that. It's really cruel. It's cruelty. And something shifted where I never fully took allegiance with the critic in the same way. When I felt how painful it was, how much it, how painful it lands in the body and the heart. Right? And this is an important thing to listen to, to feel what it's like, what's the impact like when you talk to yourself. When you say to yourself, you're pathetic, you're useless, you're worthless, or whatever your story is. What's it like to feel that? It's painful if you actually let yourself feel it, which we often don't. We just stay with the story, with the, the, the tape player. <clears throat> and when we recognize the painfulness of it, which is a very important part of understanding how compassion arises, when we recognize the painfulness, it can allow compassion to arise. When we acknowledge the painfulness of something, it allows, it can allow the heart to engage, the heart to engage with some responsiveness. So lastly, I just want to say before we do some practice, um, you know, I've done this, I've worked with this topic with people for a long time, and I've often been amazed how transformative it can be. Because we're not taught about (laughs) Our critics at school, right? You don't learn it, you know, during your GREs and your SATs, right? It's not part of the curriculum, right? It's just, you know, just what everyone has. It's what your parents had, it's what your grandparents had, it's what everyone had. Everyone, everyone, you know, like growing up in England, where I think it's a more overtly, openly critical culture, and it's okay to really um, publicly deprecate yourself, um, put yourself down at any uh, moment. It's just part of humor, it's part of social interaction. Um, and uh, so it becomes normalized. You know. So like, you know, when I came to America, to California in the early 90s, and I'd say to someone, oh, so how are you doing today? They'd be like, oh, I'm great. I just feel so full and it's a beautiful day. And I'm like, well, that's weird. <laughs> that would be considered pathological in England. <laughs> you know, if you, say, if, if you say to someone in England, hey, how you doing? 
Oh, not bad. You know, not bad. Thanks. That would that's the same thing. Not bad. Uh, can't complain. <laughs> so different cultures have their own norms around this. This you know, is part of our psyche. So to know what your own family norm, cultural norm is. So, but when I've done this work with people, I remember I had a client some years ago, um, she was a lawyer um, who generally have very well-developed critical faculties, um, as do many professions. Um, and uh, she, you know, she, like most people, had you know, a fairly healthy critic, um, but never looked at it. And through mindfulness, she, we were doing some mindfulness training and some inner work and... Um, Literally, after several weeks, like the because she turned to a critic and really took it on as a project, somehow it just it, the whole thing kind of dismantled. Not that, not that it went away forever. It's not like a happy ever after story, but it just it lost its impact, you know. And it, it can it can it can we can have that effect if we really turn our attention to it and, and learn learn ways to work with it. I had a similar story working with a an actor. A uh, friend of a friend of mine on a retreat, and he was, um, you know, again some professions being an actor and any kind of performance artist, right? You, you, your, it's your work is to perform a, for critics, right? Theater critics and music critics, and um, and so his critic was very, very well developed. And one day he's walking, doing some walking meditation, and. Um, his critics on his case about something, probably because he's not walking properly, you know, not walking right, not walking spiritually enough, or something. <laughs> and and just the critics, nah, 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 nah. and he suddenly realized, oh, it's just a bunch of thoughts. It's just a bunch of thoughts. It's just a string of words in a particular repetitive format that I give particular attention to. It's just a bunch of words. Think about all the other senseless, useless, nonsensical words that go through your mind. Right? It's just a bunch of words. If we can remember that. If we don't, if we think, no, this is actually the truth, this is authority, this is, this is who I am, then guess what? We suffer. So, uh, one of the practices that I think is a really great antidote to the critic what in the, in the Buddhist context, the Buddha would call a replacing practice, where you supplant one thing with another, right? um, which is done consciously, so it's not repression, it's not even suppression, technically, it's just shifting out. The, the brain, as neuroscience tells us, uh, as the Buddha was told us a long time ago, we can only, the mind can only have one thing in its gaze at one time. Right? We might have, you know, in the space of one second, there's many, many moments, so we can move back and forwards between things, but there's only one thing can be in the mind at one time. So if we're cultivating judgment, then guess what's present in the mind? Judgment. If we cultivate kindness or acceptance or warmth or friendliness or you know, love, right? then in that moment, judgment's not able to enter. So, um, one of the main practices that we teach here, aside from mindfulness, is loving-kindness, what's called metta practice. How many people are familiar with metta practice? Some of you, half of you. 
So the metta practice is using phrases, just like the critic uses phrases, but in a way that are wholesome, in a way that are uh, benevolent, and uh, they're statements expressing a wish for our happiness and welfare. So instead of, um, you know, give, I'm tired of my own judgments. Can you give give me a judgment? I can I can give me a just just shout out some of your judgments so I can use some of your material. Come on, don't be shy. You're unlovable. Ooh, that's a painful one. Yeah. What else? So that's, a, that's actually a perfect one for the practice. So instead of your listening to the mantra of your mind saying in various iterations, you're not lovable, you're not worthy, you're not worthy to be loved, you'll never find someone to love, what all those mantras we might say about our, our worthiness around love, we instead supplant it with a statement of metta. May I know love. May I be loved. May I love myself just as I am. May I accept myself just as I am. May I be healthy and strong. May I be happy and peaceful of heart. May I live with safety and ease in the world. These are very different ways of talking to ourselves, right? They're antidotes to those voices. So, so whenever you hear yourself judging yourself today, right, one of the things you can do is you just add a meta phrase, meta means friendliness, kindness, a phrase that expresses kindness. So, oh, you're so unlovable, you're never going to be loved. May I be happy? Yeah, but no one's going to love you. Look at you. May I love myself just as I am? Yeah, but that, I don't care about that meta bullshit. You're unlovable. <laughs> and may I love myself right now? May I accept myself just as I am? Right? So you're just adding these very powerful words of kindness to yourself. So I've done this practice for 30 years and I feel really fortunate to have found a practice early on that really helped mitigate some of the impact of the critic and then also helped build up a natural, healthy sense of self-regard and self-worth and self-love, actually. Um, that, you know, the critic still does its thing but there's a, there's a there's a balance there's a boy there's a buoyancy there's a robustness because it's because that that quality has been nurtured in the heart you know so that's what we're going to do in a moment but um, let's first stand I wish I want to play some music but I like. <laughs> yeah, let's have some music. Let's have some flute music. Yeah. Yeah, and then we'll... So just take some moments to stretch and what we need to do to bring some life to your body. If we can get more windows open, that would be great. It's pretty stuffy in here. So if you buy a window, please open the windows. Michelle, if we can get any more vents open up top, would be great. Playing a, a higher key, 
so it should be a little bit more um, easy to move to, a little bit lighter. Okay, she's playing a higher key, so it'll be easier to move to more uplifting. Um, just just um, higher key, so a little bit uh, more gay, perhaps. Okay. Feel free to stand, move. And you can please sit down also if you want to sit down, whatever's comfortable.
Thank you. So if you'd like to find a comfortable meditation posture, sitting upright or as comfortable as you can find, I want to read this story from one of Jack's books. He's talking about D.S. Bennett, who's talking about childhood and writes, My mother always assured me any child as naughty as I was, if I were you, she said, I'd be afraid to go to sleep at night. After describing years of abuse and violation, Bennett goes on, the most devastating words my mother ever spoke to me came when I asked her if she loved me. I'd just been escorted home by the police after one of my many attempts to run away, so my timing was not good. <laughs> she answered, how could anybody ever love you? It took me almost 50 years to heal the damage from all her ugly remarks. Recently, I remembered a childhood ritual of mine that helped me survive. From the age of five or six until I was well into my teens, whenever I had trouble sleeping, I would slip out from under my covers and steal into the kitchen for a bit of bread or cheese, which I would carry back to bed with me. And there I'd pretend my hands belonged to someone else, a comforting, reassuring being without a name, an angel perhaps. The right hand would feed me little pieces of cheese or bread as the left hand stroked my cheeks and hair. My eyes closed. I would whisper softly to myself, There, there, go to sleep. You're safe now. Everything will be all right. I love you. So sometimes uh, the resiliency of children and human beings is amazing. And we can find this capacity to be loving, kind to ourselves, right? So, maybe you didn't hear those exact words, but you may have heard other words that were equally damaging, painful, unconscious, and they leave their scars, and they get reinforced by our judgments, critic. And so the meta practice is one way to, as she did, feed herself pieces of cheese and bread and stroked her cheek and hair. We do the same with metta. There's a lovely poem from, part of a poem from Galway Canal, who says, um, this is from St. Francis and the Sow, and he says, um, the bud, the flower bud, Rosebud. The bud stands for all things, even for the even for things that do not blossom. For everything blossoms within from self blessing. Though sometimes it's necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower, to tell it in words and in touch it is lovely until it flowers from within of self blessing. So sometimes we need to reteach ourselves our only loveliness, to put our hands on our heart, on our brow, and tell ourselves in words and in touch, we too are also lovely. We are worthy of kindness and care. So that's what meta practice is. 
So let's um, close your eyes or have your eyes get lowered, gaze lowered. Sitting at ease. And just taking a moment to sense your body, sense your heart, sense your chest, center of your chest. You may even want to put your hand there and just, just notice what you're feeling here, sitting, breathing, listening, reflecting on this work with the critic and the pain of it. And take a moment to sense into your aspiration for yourself, your wish for your own happiness, your own well-being. What is it you most wish for? What is it you most wish for yourself, long for? And the practice of metta, kindness, is a way of offering yourself those wishes. We do it in somewhat of a formalized way. And we're also connecting into our own goodness, our own good qualities. Which can sometimes be hard to remember once if we're beleaguered by our critic. But to take a moment to sense in your own goodness, your good-heartedness. Ways that you're kind or generous, or loving, caring. We're just reflecting on this wish to be happy. And I'll repeat some phrases a few times and express this wish. And you may use your own words. I'll use mine for now. May I be safe and protected from inner and outer harm. The inner harm being the harm that comes from the way that we talk to ourselves. May I be safe and protected from inner and outer harm. Simply put, may I feel safe. May I feel safe, may I be safe in myself. May I feel healthy and strong in my body, or as healthy as I'm able to be. May I be healthy and strong. May I feel happy, peaceful, in this moment.
live in my life with ease, without stress. May I love and accept myself just as I am. May I love and accept myself just as I am. Staying connected to your heart, and repeating these phrases slowly and meaningfully. Not looking to generate any particular feeling, just knowing the power of the practice is in the wishing of these intentional statements for yourself. May I feel safe. May I feel healthy. May I feel happy, peaceful. with ease. May I love and accept myself. Staying connected to your heart, connected to your wish for yourself, using these phrases or other phrases. May I be safe. healthy. May I be happy. May I live with ease. and accept myself. <laughs> you may notice sounds or other things come into your mind, images, thoughts. Notice those and then come back. Sense your heart, sense this wish for yourself.
Each time your mind wanders, come back. May I be safe. May I feel healthy. May I feel happy, peaceful. May I live with ease. May I accept myself just as I am. These different from affirmations, these are aspirational statements. Not looking for any particular feeling, just to keep wishing yourself well. Continue extending this wish for yourself, or you can call to mind a loved one, someone who's easy for you to feel a sense of kindness and warmth for friendliness, someone who, when you think about, brings a smile to your face. Might be a child, might be a grandparent, might be a teacher, someone with whom you have a a lot of natural affection for. Feel into this person's good qualities. They wish to be happy just like you. And offering the same Wishes. This person just like me wants to be safe. May you too feel safe. May you too be healthy and strong. May you be happy, peaceful. May you live with ease. So just offering them these phrases slowly, meaningfully, holding them in your heart.
we feel safe and protected. May you be healthy and strong. May you feel happy, peaceful. May you live with freedom and ease in your life. Taking some moments to imagine this person wishing those same phrases to you. This person probably has equally a deep care and regard, warmth, friendliness to you. So sometimes it's easier to imagine receiving these statements from someone else rather than saying them to ourselves. So if that helps, you can play with that idea of Imagine them saying these same phrases to you. May you too be safe. May you too be healthy. May you too be happy, peaceful. Live with ease. And lastly, ending with offering these qualities of kindness first to yourself and this person equally. May we be safe and protected. May we be healthy and strong. happy, peaceful, and live with freedom and ease in our lives. Love and accept ourselves just as we are. And extending this to the person sitting either side of you, maybe a stranger, maybe a dear friend, Too. Be safe, healthy, happy, 
And I'll close with a poem from the Sufi poet Hafez. We have not come here to take prisoners, but to surrender ever more deeply to freedom and joy. We have not come into this exquisite world to hold ourselves hostage from love. Run, my dear, from anything that may not strengthen your precious budding wings. Run like hell, my dear, from anyone likely to put a sharp knife into the sacred, ten the sacred tender vision of your beautiful heart. We have a duty to befriend those aspects that stand outside of ourselves and shout to our reason, oh please, please come out and play. For we have not come here to take prisoners or to confine our wondrous spirits, but to experience ever more deeply our divine courage, freedom, and light. So as an expression of kindness, the person with a Honda, um, I can't read what this says, um, well the license plate 5GR4815, is there anybody here? Um, it's a Honda Day, mm, I don't know what this means. Anybody recognize that license plate, G5GR4815? Is that the type of Honda? It says Day Bloomer or something? Honda, she said with a dog blanket in the back. Dog blanket in the back, very distinguishing. Yeah. Yes, yeah. all right. If you could move your car, it's just blocking somebody in who's trying to leave now. Thanks. <clears throat> but no need to give yourself a hard time. You're innocent. <laughs> it's all their fault. Why did they park there? I know why. They, why do they have to leave now? people. <laughs> oh, it's good to play. <laughs> so, um, so any, um, so that's just a very short introduction that some of you are very familiar with the practice, but um, there are many different stages you can extend love to strangers and to difficult people in your life and to eventually to all, everybody and friends and loved ones. Um, but the main point is really to learn how to bring this attitude of friendliness to yourself. And this express, offer this wish of kindness, you know, heartfelt kindness. May I be well. May I be okay. May I be safe. May I be happy. Yeah. Not I am happy, because you might not be happy, but may I be happy is more true. That's why it's not an affirmation. And to remember that, you know, so like all these things, right? It's like the gym, it's a great idea. Uh, it doesn't work unless you go there, right? <laughs> these practices don't work unless you practice them. That's why they're called practice, right? So the more you practice them, and of course it's easy to forget, right? Because that's just is. Right? We just go on with our usual habits. So practice is creating new habits, new neural pathways, which requires that we remember. Right? And that's the hard part, actually remembering. Once you, once you remember, it's not that difficult, but practicing. Remembering, remembering is harder. So whatever you can do to, to remind yourself. You know? So I, for instance, one thing I do is whenever I see someone 
come into a room, that's one of my signals to practice metta. Rather than like a who is that, what do they want, you know, <laughs> like how terribly they're dressed, to um, oh, may they be happy, you know. So just some little cues that remind you, oh, yeah, every time someone you know, walks into your office, or you know, a lovely practice I teach to physicians that many people I know now are using is they, um, uh, they knock on the door before they go in to see a patient. Just takes three seconds. May this person be well. Right? It changes your whole frame of mind. Right? Every time I'm in traffic, I try to practice metta. May we all get to where we're going on time. <laughs> you know, may we all be safe. You know, because we're traffic for the car behind us. We just forget that. Right? Um, so, you know, practice it with others, practice it in meetings, but mostly with yourself, sitting on the bus, you're driving, you're in the shower, um, especially when you mess up, you forget something, and you know the critic's gonna come, and particularly after the critic comes, and you just add a phrase, which kind of neutralizes the sting of the critic. May I be well. May I remember next time. <laughs> May my memory cells be strong <laughs> and not wither away. <laughs> A hand back there, a question or comment? That was so hard to mm. because it's so strange to me. Mm-hmm. The, the critic was already saying, oh, that will never happen. <laughs> 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 you know, that's just words. So, as soon as I thought that, then you said, oh, you need to practice that. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, good to see you. No, and no one said this was easy. Right? This is not necessarily easy. If it was easy, we'd probably be doing it, or we wouldn't need to do it, right? So, um, you know, we're going against years and years and years of our critics saying, you're not worthy to be happy, you're never going to get it together, you're not blah, 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 right? So, of course, it's and it's and you will get a critic backlash. I'm actually glad you mentioned that. The critic will... You know, like it does undermine everything. Well, pff, this is, you know, fallen before it started. You know, this is a waste of time. You'll never do this. You'll never get up in the morning and meditate. You'll, you'll never remember. You'll never, you know, be happy, right? So, um, you know, we'll talk more about the working with those voices this afternoon. But for now, the main thing is you recognize it. Oh, oh, look. Oh, oh hello, old friend. <laughs> Oh, what do you have to say about this? Oh, something critical? What a surprise. <laughs> oh, yeah, you think this piece of crap too? Yeah, okay. Well, thanks for your opinion. And uh, may I be happy? <laughs> and may you be happy? <laughs> may I be happy? <laughs> may I be happy? Yeah. But yeah, it's work. You know, this is work. This is, you know, spiritual trench work, right? Um, like a lot of spiritual work is actually, it's work. You know, it takes time, takes effort, takes a lot of intention and uh, support and practice. You know? Yeah, I mean, when I did Metta for many years, mostly it was a block of ice right here, like just nothing, just kind of pretty neutral. And, um, but I kept at it and it, you know, felt like it thawed the heart, you know. It was worth the work, for 
for sure. Yeah, at the back, hand at the back. The difference between spontaneous feelings of kindness, metta, and and the more and using the phrases. Yeah. Um, well, you know the the we're not the the point. An important important point is we're not using the phrase like a mantra. In that we're not using it to beat something back per se. Even though I can see you know with anxiety sometimes, matter is actually a really helpful antidote. Um, but you don't want to use it like a mantra that's just rote. You want to actually feel the genuineness of each phrase, right? As as much as you can, you know. So you might not be feeling anywhere near the realm of happiness, but you can genuinely say, "May I be happy." Right? I might be feeling completely neutral and numb, but I can still access some part of me that can genuinely say, "May I be happy," because I want to be happy. You know? So I can access that wish. Can't access the feeling that that's that's not up to me. That comes and goes, but the power of the practice is in the intention. May I feel safe? May I be safe wherever I am? I can access the the authenticity of that that intention. So that's what that's the power of the practice. Does that make sense? And sometimes that elicits a warm feeling. More often than not, not. Um, but the point is the power of the, the intentionality behind each phrase. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't use affirmations. It's not something I practice, and I don't. Um, so, the mostly because they're often not true, and I don't think there's any there's any point in saying something that you don't believe is true. Um, so, oh, that's not that's not totally true. Sometimes <laughs> there's a place for that, um, as 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 an aspirational. Um, as a counterpoint to something. There's a place for it, but mostly, I, the way affirmations are mostly used in the culture, I'm not a big fan of, personally. Um, but the, uh, you know, the, 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 the phrase, whatever phrase we're using, they're just expressions of what would be a natural expression of a healthy heart. You know, when you're in hospital with a loved one and they're going on to get surgery, you want them to be well. Right? You just want them to be well, even if they've got a terminal diagnosis, you want them to be well, or as well as they can be. 
right? That's just the wish of the heart, right? It's a basic wish. And with ourselves, it's gotten a little convoluted because of all the negative stuff we have with ourselves and religious beliefs about, you know, to wish ourselves well as somehow self-indulgent or self-cherishing or selfish or other kind of stuff that, that you know, views. Um, but it's basically just a, a simple wish of the heart. You know, just as you want your loved ones and your friends and your dog and to be well, to be happy, to be safe, right? It's just it's just that very simple wish. Yeah. So yeah, at the back. Um, I don't know. <laughs> they haven't heard my talk. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, why is humanity like it is, you know? Because we're, you know, from the context of this tradition, you know, this understanding from this wisdom tradition, the, the, we are like we are because we're driven by very primal f- egoic forces. You know, greed and hatred and ignorance. Yeah, I've been told that uh, it's a narcissistic supremacy, psycho-sociopathic rulers of the world that are running the world. That's the problem. Yeah, well, I'm not going to go there, but... Um, <laughs> you know, th- th- I think what's important is what's out there is in here, right? What's over there is in here. The hatred we can feel for someone who cut us off in traffic, right? The rage we can feel for, um, I don't know, you know, the smallest thing sometimes, you know, it's amazing how much, you know, violence we have in our own mind, right? It's no different than what's being played out on the the world stage, to different degrees. Um, So we all have our work to do, you know? And I went, personally feel, you know, that we have to count our blessings, that we live in a place that's relatively safe and, and all of that, that we can have the opportunity to practice, that we can learn and we can grow and we can give back and contribute um, and pray that humanity uh, somehow wakes up, you know, to the brutality and the violence and the racism and the oppression and Breaks my heart. What we're doing to each other—it's heartbreaking. And the force of the critic is another f- aspect of that hatred, right? It's just one expression of, except it's turned inward. No different than the violence that's happening in untold places around the world, except it's inward. It's cruelty. In the Eightfold Path, the Buddha talked about um, the you know, three fundamental shifts in intention to shift from. Um, Hatred to kindness, compassion, cruelty to compassion, and from fixation with grasping after experience to finding um, uh, simplicity, contentment. So, you know, that's our work, and uh, we all have our work to do. 
That's why we're here. So let's take a break for lunch. And um, it's a beautiful day, which is great. And, you know, this is heavy work for some of you, probably for most of you, if not all of you. And um, so with, with practice, it's good to, to, you know, have a balanced perspective, right? We, do, we look at the hard stuff and we also recognize it's a beautiful autumnal day. We're with beautiful people. We have the blessing to have food that's healthy and nourishing. Go outside, enjoy the fresh air. The retreat's just finished up the hill, so you're welcome to walk anywhere on the land. Um, you can go look into the meditation hall if you've never looked in there. Um, and uh, yeah, so just you know, bring some counterpoint to this work. Um, notice your critic over lunch, because it will, I, I notice actually when I eat, my critic gets quite loud. Um, I don't know why, but just, you know, especially when I'm on retreat, it, it, I look around and there's just a lot of judgments flying here, there, and everywhere. So just notice that. Judgments about yourself, judgments about your food, judgments about what you eat, judgments about how much you eat, judging about how you eat, judging, you know, it's just, it's endless, right? So it's like, thank you for your opinion, let me have my lunch, please, right? I'm just <laughs> enjoying my apple, so shut up. Um, so notice that. Continue the practice. And I've got a couple more comments before you get your stuff. So um, you're welcome to eat outside. You're welcome to eat in here. Um, and it's, um, for, there's many of you here new to Spirit Rock. So one of the things I need to talk about is dana, which is a word for generosity. And Spirit Rock is a center in the Buddhist tradition, in the Theravadan tradition, which is the, 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 the early lineage of Buddhism and it's still practiced in, we've drawn our teachings from Thailand and Burma and Southeast Asia primarily, from the lineage of the Buddha. And one of the practices, one of the containers and cultures here is this culture of generosity. So how that works is that um, in, in, a, in a traditional Buddhist setting, there's no charge for the teachings, there's no charge for meditation, there's just, it's all offered freely because those cultures and the people attending support the center and the teacher and the community to flourish. Um, so when the founders came to the states of this tradition, we wanted to bring some of that quality. So uh, Spirit Rock runs with a, as much as it can on the principles of dana, which means generosity, offering to keep the prices as low as possible. We're doing this whole building process that's costing us millions, that's all built through generosity of people. And you know, we're a nonprofit, so a third of our budget comes from um, uh, people like you who love this place who want to keep the doors open and, and donate. And so one of the one aspects of that is that the teachers who work here, myself and many others, um, none of us are paid, we're not on salary, we're not on benefits, we're not on pension or all that other stuff. Uh, that sounds really nice, but we don't get. Um, and we teach here because we love the practice. I love doing what I do. I love meditation. I love this practice. It's liberating. And um, I do it because it's my passion. And I'm not paid. And so there's an invitation um, at the end of a course like this where you're offered to support the teachers uh, teaching the, the practice. So you'll see baskets out in the foyer that say Dana. That doesn't mean anybody's name. It actually means generosity. <laughs> and uh, you're invited to support my teaching. So I'm here partly because I'm 
supported from the last event I taught, wherever that was, and I'll be coming. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.